Well, this winter I've been preaching through a sermon series uh, called Revival. And simple definition of a revival would just be God pouring out more of his life, his presence, his power in our church and in our lives. That's our heart. It's not that just we would coast through lives, but that we would really experience God and his power and his presence. Amen? That's our prayer. And so we've been trying to dive in and press in more to know him this winter. And earlier in the series, I had, well, I'll just skip that one for a second. I had mentioned this. Uh, I've gone, gone back to this every week from Richard Lovelace's book, Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal. He said, whenever you see revival throughout history, typically there's these two things that are preconditions. One, an increased awareness of the holiness of God, that God is perfect and transcendent and his his character, his, his expectations, everything are so far up here, and then the depth of our sin, an increased awareness of how, when we're honest about ourselves, we realize we're not all we're cracked up to be, and we're not all we think we are, that uh, all our affirmations fall short when we truly look at the depth of our sin. And when we see the gap between those two, those tend to be the preconditions that lead to revival. Um, and I think the reason that those two things lead to revival is because those two things prime us for a true understanding of what Jesus did for us, right? It's when you truly understand the holiness of God and the depth of our sin is that you are ready. Your heart is at a place where you can truly understand the gospel, understand what Jesus did for us. So what we're going to do this morning is begin to dive into over the next few weeks as we approach the cross and the resurrection Try to get a deeper understanding of what it is that Jesus did for us. This morning we're going to be looking at Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane from Matthew 26. And I just want to share this quote with you before we dive into this. from A.W. Tozer. God tells the man who cares. He said this, The Bible was written in tears, and to tears it will yield its best treasure. God has nothing to say to the frivolous man. You don't know what frivolous means, the one who's consumed by unimportant things, whose life is all about just entertainment and trivia and things like that, but his God has nothing to say to the frivolous man or woman. And I encourage you this morning to come soberly, to come honestly, to come ready to hear from God, because this is the kind of text where, you know, we feel like we should take our shoes off because we're entering holy ground. So let's read Matthew 26, 20 through 50. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said... Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, "This, Take and eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you the truth. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him... With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. This is God's word. We pray before we continue. Father, help us to come to this text with all the seriousness and soberness that this requires. Help us to truly see what is going on here, what this means for us. Reveal this to us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Certainly there's many things that I could say about this passage. I want to focus mainly on the second part where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus has just celebrated this final meal with his disciples. He's let them know that one of them is going to betray him and the rest of them are just going to scatter and run away and hide, basically. He takes this Passover meal that they've celebrated annually ever since the Exodus that was supposed to commemorate how God had rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. That as they slaughtered the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, that the angel of death would pass over those doors because of the blood of the lamb and that the firstborn son would be rescued, would not be killed. And every year they've celebrated the Passover. And here comes Jesus taking this Passover meal and reinterpreting it and saying that this blood represents, I mean, sorry, this cup, this wine represents my blood that is about to be poured out for you. And this bread represents my body, which is about to be slain for you. And instead of doing this in remembrance of what God did back in the Exodus, you're going to be doing this in remembrance of what I'm about to do, this greater Exodus, that by my blood, the angel of death will pass over you, and you will be saved. And after the meal, he goes to pray in this garden called Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, and he asks his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, to come and keep watch with him. It's amazing. Of course, we know that Jesus is fully God and fully man, but in this passage, he's never more fully man, right? I mean, he comes... He's asking his friends to stay with him, just to keep watch with him. He's anxious. He's in deep agony. And you might find it disturbing when you look at Jesus. He seems to be handling this very 
poorly, you might say. In verse 37 to 39 again, it says, He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And when you read uh, the Gospel of Luke, his account, he adds a detail in there that's not in the Matthew one. He says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's this Greek phrase that is meant to denote just the the deepest anguish and torture that a soul can feel. That something is going on inside of Jesus that as he comes to this place to pray, he feels like he's disintegrating. He's falling apart. There's such agony going on. And as Luke puts, points out, the agony is so great that he is sweating blood. It's this condition called hematidrosis that only happens under extreme stress and anguish. Has anyone ever sweat blood before? I didn't think so. As stressed as you've ever been, as, as maybe as much anguish as you've ever felt, you've probably never felt it to this level where you are sweating blood, where blood is coming out of your pores. That is what Jesus is experiencing right here, that torture of spirit. What is going on in Jesus that he is feeling this extreme stress? There he's saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Well, you say maybe it's, you know, he's, he knows he's going to die. He knows he's about to go to this cross. He's about to get nailed to this cross. Obviously, he's stressed about it. But the thing is, Jesus knew this was going to happen. He told this for example, in Mark 10, 33 to 34, to his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, that's how he refers to himself, will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus knows he's going to die and more than that, he knows he's going to be raised to life again. He knows that this death is not permanent. And maybe you think, you know, if I knew I was going to die, but I also knew I was going to be raised to life, and this was just temporary, I don't know that I'd be sweating blood. I mean, I certainly wouldn't be looking forward to it, but I don't know that I'd be sweating blood. I'd be into that kind of extreme anguish. So why? Why is Jesus overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? Why is he sweating blood as he comes near to this garden? I think the answer is found in what he prays. He says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup Be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So specifically, what he prays is that God would take away this cup from him. And maybe when you first heard that phrase, you think the cup is just like a a synonym for this ordeal, you know. May I not have to go through this painful ordeal. But the cup throughout the Bible has rich symbolism to it. Let me just read some of the verses where the cup shows up and see if you can get a a sense of what he's referring to here when he asks the Father to remove this cup from him. Psalm 75, 7 through 8. It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Isaiah 51, 17. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. 
Jeremiah 25, 15 to 16. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. Ezekiel 23, 33 through 34. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it dry. You will dash it to pieces and tear your breasts. Revelation 14, 9 through 10. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Are you getting the picture? So when Jesus comes before the Father... And he begins to feel this anguish and this sorrow that is so overwhelming that he feels like he's going to die, that he begins sweating blood. And he asks him if there's any other way, if there's any other way to do this, any other way to save these humans than for me to have to drink the cup, let's take door B. But not my will but yours be done. The cup that he's referring to is not just some painful ordeal. The cup he's referring to is this. Jesus, on that cross, is about to experience the wrath of the Father on human sin. The full weight of the fury of God the Father on sin. And Jesus, who has lived with the Father for all eternity and has known perfect love and unity and all of that, has never known that. Right? I mean, that's one thing Jesus has never known. I'm sure he knows what it might look like, but he has never felt it. This is why he's sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is why his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Because as he comes to the Father in prayer, it's as if the Father is beginning to pull away and show him, this is what you're about to experience. This is what you're about to go through. You still want to go through with this. And I know that mentioning the word wrath for many of you makes you squirm. Talking about the wrath of God makes you feel like, I, you know, I, I prefer the God of love. I prefer a God who is just, you know, loves everyone. I don't particularly like this. I don't think anyone particularly, you know, is drawn to that. But it's part of his love that if you love someone, then you hate that which destroys the one you love. You hate that which comes against the one you love. You hate that which threatens the one you love. That's part of love. That wrath towards sin, wrath towards that which opposes the one you love, that's part of it. And God who is perfect in love is also perfect in justice. And he will punish sin. He has to. Because he's a good God. He's a good judge. And any judge who just let evil off the hook. Any judge who would not punish those who do evil would not be a good judge. Wrath is part of his love. Because God is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. He must punish evil. But there's a dilemma with that, isn't there? Right? Romans 3.23. There's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then unfortunately we all fall in that boat. 
We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if he were to punish sin, that includes all of us. That his wrath would be poured out on all of us. But God loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to take that punishment for us. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you understand why Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? Do you understand why he was sweating blood? Yes, he was going to the cross, but it wasn't just about the physical pain he was about to endure. It was about this spiritual death and disintegration that he was about to take upon himself the full wrath of the Father on human sin. He had never experienced the absence of the Father. And now he was about to. I mean, some of you know what it's like when a friend abandons you. The pain that you feel when someone who you care about abandons you. And that hurts. But it hurts worse when a spouse abandons you, right? It hurts worse when a spouse turns his or her back and abandons you. And it hurts even worse when a parent does, when a parent declares that they don't want you, they don't love you. This is beyond all of that. This is the son who would live with the father for all eternity, experiencing the father turning his back. He was about to experience the full wrath of the father on human sin. No wonder he was sweating blood. And Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. As it says in Hebrews 2.9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Again, I don't think that's just some metaphor, taste death, right? <clears throat> that he drank the cup of the wrath of the Father on human sin. So here in the Garden of Gethsemane we have this very human Jesus we see the full humanity of Jesus asking his friends to stay awake with him, sweating blood at what's about to happen, and then choosing in the end to say, not my will, but yours be done. You have the Father asking him, are you willing to go through with this? Are you still willing to go through with this? And just to make the matters worse, right? It's not just, are you willing to go through with this, but are you willing to go through with this for these guys? Your three best friends who can't even stay awake with you in the hour of your greatest need, they fall asleep. Are you willing to take the cup for them? Are you willing to die for them? It's loud and clear. The Father saying, this is who you're dying for. These humans who can't even stay awake with you, can't even be there for you in the hour of your greatest need. I mean, that's us, right? You have Peter at the Last Supper Saying to Jesus, you know, I will not deny you. Even if I have to die with you, I will die with you. I'm, I've got your back, Jesus. Less than an hour later, he is falling asleep. <laughs> He's falling asleep when Jesus has asked him to stay awake. Is that not a picture of us, right? How many of you have left maybe church on a Sunday morning like, that's it. I'm living for God. Never again, you know. I'm, I'm turning my back on that stuff and I'm living. And ten minutes later, you've gotten home and, and you've completely forgotten anything that you just promised. This is it. This is the Father asking Jesus, are you willing to go through 
with this, to drink full strength the cup of the wrath of the Father on human sin for these people who won't even stay awake with you. And Jesus says, listen, if there's any other way, let's go that way. But in the end, not my will, but yours be done. So what does this mean for you? Four things let me share. Four implications from this passage. First one is this. Someone, either you or Jesus, must drink the cup. Someone's going to drink that cup. The cup represents the wrath of God on human sin. Someone's going to drink it. It's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus on your behalf. Because we've all sinned against the holy God. We've all fallen short of his perfect standard. There must be payment for sin. His justice must be, must be met, and someone's got to drink it down. Listen to John three sixteen to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's Jesus' words saying the exact same thing. Someone's going to drink the cup here. He says, all who believe in Jesus, Jesus drank the cup for them. They will not be condemned. They are saved. But if you reject him, he says, if you reject God's offer, he says you stand condemned already because you have rejected God's Son. And then later in that chapter, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Again, these are not my words. I'm not making this up. I'm not preaching fire and brimstone. I am just quoting what Jesus has said, right? This is Jesus, the God of love, saying, listen, all of you, you're in a bad way here. You are in a tough situation here. You have all sinned against the holy God. You've all fallen short. And his wrath, his condemnation is on you. And someone's going to drink the cup. It's either going to be you or Jesus for you if you put your trust in him and what he's done for you. This is Jesus saying this. Whoever believes in his son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Romans three nineteen to 24. These are Paul's words. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. In other words, he's saying anyone who stands before God thinking, hey, look at all I've done. Look at my spiritual resume. Look at how good I am, all how religious I am. He says no one is going to be declared right in God's sight by observing the law. It doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter how good a person you think you are. No one is going to measure up to God's perfect standard. But now, verse 21, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. He says, but here's the good news. There's a way to be right with God that has nothing to do with obeying the law. It has nothing to do with how good a person you are, how religious a person you are. There's a way to be right with God. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That means they are declared not guilty. They're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Am I speaking clear to you? Are you understanding what I'm saying with these verses? 
that he is saying we are all in the same boat before a holy God. It does not matter who you are, where you grew up, how good a person you think you are. We're all in the same boat before a holy God. We've all fallen short. But God, in his love for us, has provided a way to be forgiven that does not depend on how much money you give to the church. It does not depend on how good you are at following the Ten Commandments. It doesn't depend on your attendance on a Sunday morning. It depends on putting your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting that by his life, death, and, death and resurrection, you are forgiven. You're saved. Someone's going to drink the cup. Just like back in the Exodus, someone was going to die. It was going to either be a firstborn son or a lamb. And here we are again. Someone's going to die. It's either going to be us drinking the cup of God's wrath or it's going to be Jesus doing it for you. And if you truly understand this, think of the implications for those you love. Right? I mean, this is not just about us. This is about every single person in this world especially those we love, especially our neighbor. It's either going to be them or it's going to be Jesus for them. Pray that God would reveal himself to them, give you opportunity to share the gospel of the love of God. Again, remember, the preconditions of revival I said at the beginning, it's an it's a increased awareness of the holiness of God and the depth of our sin. And the more we understand that and then we look at what Jesus did for us, to bridge that gap, to live that perfect life we couldn't live, and then to take the punishment we deserved so that we who are down here and God was up here, that we can be brought to God. How can that not transform your heart? To love him, to see what he's done for you. The second implication of this, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, is this. You can trust God's will. This is Jesus pouring out his heart to the Father, saying, if there is any other way, any other way to accomplish this, let's do that, because I am not looking forward to drinking this cup and experiencing the wrath of the Father on human sin. But in the end, he says, not my will, but yours be done. If it's got to be this way, I trust you, Father. And I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that place when you're praying, where you're just like, listen, if there's any other way than the way I'm currently going, than the situation I'm currently in, if we can find another way, let's do that. But in the end, just like Jesus, we have the opportunity to trust and say, in the end, not my will but yours be done. It's not a cop-out to pray that. Jesus prayed it too. To ask God and plead, listen, Lord, please, this is what I want for my life. This is where I'm hoping this, my relationship goes. This is where I'm hoping my job goes, my finances, whatever it might be, my health this is what I'm asking for, God. But in the end, if you choose this direction, I trust you. Not my will, but yours be done. Because in the end, prayer is not so much about changing God's mind. It's about aligning our will with his will, right? That's what prayer, it's about aligning our will with his will. Not about aligning his will with our will, trying to make God do what we want him to do. In the end, it's saying, God, I'm asking for this. I'm pleading for this. I'm begging for this. But in the end, not my will, but yours be done. I trust you. You can trust God's will. Third implication is this. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
This comes straight from Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. It's the same thing I was saying earlier, right? He's saying there's a way to be right with God that doesn't depend upon observing the law, trying to be a good person, depends upon putting your trust in Jesus and what he did for you. And then he says, when you do that, there's no condemnation. In other words, Jesus drank the whole cup down to the bottom, experienced it, and there's nothing left for you. Amen? There's no condemnation left for you. There's no judgment left for you. You're free. You're forgiven. You're loved. He drank it down to the bottom. Romans 8 follows after Romans 7, obviously. At the end of Romans 7, you might be aware, there's this great dialogue where Paul says, you know, like, listen, I want to follow God, but every time I want, right there with me is my sinful nature. And it's wrestling, it's battling, and I can't understand why I want to do good, but my sinful nature is right there with me trying to pull me away from God and cause me to do evil. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he follows up by saying this, there's no condemnation. As much as we struggle, as much as we sin and fall short, there's no condemnation because Jesus drank it down to the bottom. Do you know that every time that you sin, there's a battle that rages over your soul? Do you know that? Every time that you sin, there's this battle that rages. In Luke's account, there's these verses. Simon, Simon, this is Jesus talking to Simon Peter. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. You know what's going on there? You don't have to understand farming to understand what's going on, right? Peter is about to deny three times that he even knew Jesus, right? Jesus is being taken away, and Peter's warming himself by the fire. And people are like, hey, weren't you with that Jesus? And Peter's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. He wants to save his own skin, and so he denies knowing Jesus. It's the lowest moment of Peter's life. He's crushed that he could let down his Lord like that. And Jesus here at the, at the Last Supper says, listen, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. You are going to hit such a low point. Satan is going to try to take you out. He is going to convince you that you are such a failure, a miserable failure, a sorry excuse for a Christian. He is going to just try his best to convince you to give up, to, to kill yourself, to just... Go into despair. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Like I've got, I've got plans for you. Despite your failures, I've got plans for you. And I want you to know that every time that you sin, you find yourself in this position. Whether or not you're aware of it, there's this battle that goes on. There is an enemy who wants nothing more than to take you out, convince you that you are a miserable failure, how dare you even call yourself a Christian? God doesn't want you. He wants to sift you as wheat. He wants to take you out. 
Jesus says, there's this battle going on, but I'm praying for you that your faith would not fail. There's no condemnation for you. If you're feeling and hearing condemnation, it's not coming from God because there's no condemnation. Jesus drank the cup down to the bottom. Any condemnation is coming from the enemy. It's not coming from God. Pray that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, when you, when you repent, when you confess, I've still got work for you to do. I've still got a plan for you. Last thing is this. We owe everything to Jesus. Again, here's the holiness of God. Here's his expectations. Here's his character. Here's us, the depth of our sin. And no amount of any good works, nothing is ever going to bridge that gap. Nothing we could ever do on our own is going to bridge that gap. The only hope is that there's a way to be right with God that doesn't depend upon observing the law, doesn't depend upon our good works. And God has provided that in Jesus Christ, who to the very end, sweating blood, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, stayed true. Why? Because he loves you. Because he wants you with the Father. He wants you with him for all eternity. He wants you. He loves you. That is why he went through all of that was for you. You owe everything to him. Eternity you owe to him. Everything you owe to him. It's all grace. It is all mercy. It is all a gift. Do you really think that what he's asking for in return is that you would come and, you know, sit in church for an hour every week? Is that really what he's just looking for? Hey, you just, you know. Is that why he sweat blood in the garden? He wants you. He loves you. He wants you to trust him, to live for him, to give everything, to serve him, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We owe him everything. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, Paul writes, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Why don't you read that one again by yourself a little slowly. Make sure you take that in. What is it that motivates and compels us? Is it fear of punishment? No. Is it guilt? No. This Christ's love compels us as we look at what he did for us. That is what transforms us. That is what motivates us. Because the truth is there's no condemnation. That right now I could go out and murder somebody, I believe. And there's no condemnation because he's paid the penalty for my sin. But you know what? I don't want to do any of that because I love him. And I want to honor him with my life. And the motivation has changed. It's not a motivation out of guilt, out of fear, out of fear of punishment, of any of that. The motivation is love. I want to love him. I want to honor him. I want to live my life for him. That's why I want to live a holy life, not because I'm afraid of punishment, not because of guilt. There's no condemnation. Jesus drank the cup down to the bottom. I just want to love him the way he's loved me. I want to honor him and give him all the honor and glory that he deserves for what he's done for me. That is the love we're talking about here. He died for us that we might die to ourselves 
no longer live for ourselves, but live for the one who died for us. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. That's why that is holy ground. Because you have Jesus overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, sweating blood because he knows what's about to happen. God the Father is giving him a glimpse. This is what you're about to go through. You are going to have to drink to the bottom the cup of the wrath of the Father on human sin. And not only that, you're going to have to do it for these guys who can't even stay awake with you. Are you still willing to go through it? And in the end, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Yes, out of love for them, I'm willing to go to that length, to that extreme, to die for them, to drink it down to the bottom so that they could know how loved they are, that there's no condemnation, there's no guilt, there's no shame. They are loved. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would apply this truth to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Overwhelm our hearts with your love. Motivate us, compel us by your love, not to live for ourselves, but to live for you, to love others the way you've loved us, to bring you the maximum amount of honor and glory as we can through our lives, Lord, because you deserve it. You rescued us from death, from eternal separation. You went through unimaginable torture and pain so that we never would have to. We stand here free, loved, adopted as your beloved children. No condemnation, no shame, no guilt because of you. So Jesus, we give you all the glory. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.